We are recording in progress. Recording with Dr. Patrick Moore, co-founder of Green Peace. Peace. Good Lord. Peace. And uh, author of Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, which is on Audible. Thank you very much. I'm so happy it's on Audible. It's always a, a pain when the book is not on Audible and I can't listen to it. Um, that book is in the description. I highly recommend it. It's very eye-opening. And spoiler alert, everything comes down to follow the money. And um, and your Twitter's in the description as well, as well as your website. So you guys can go check them out. Please go follow them. Please go grab the book. Dr. Moore, please introduce yourself. Hey, Tommy. Um I was born on the northwest tip of Vancouver Island, the largest island on the west coast of the Americas, in 1947. And I was on a floating camp, my dad's logging camp, in a small windswept inlet with about 100 people in it, with no road to it, and everything was done by boat. I went to school in a boat and came home that way too. So it was a very unique childhood for someone even that long ago. And I was in just totally immersed in nature. City guy came up there once and says, I don't get it. There's nothing here. I said, come on, David, there's everything here. All the trees and the forests and the docks and the houses, it's all here. This is what it is. And he thought that that was nothing that because he was a sky a skyscraper builder family. And okay. <laughs> totally, okay. total contrast. Anyways, I, I did learn as a child to love nature. I didn't even realize how uh, much I absorbed of it until I was sent to boarding school in Vancouver at age 14, where I learned city ways pretty quick and uh, ended up uh, doing a science major, then a, a Bachelor of Science Honors in Biology and Forestry, and then a PhD in Ecology. I believe I was the first student to get a PhD in ecology in Canada. Back then, the word was hardly known. As a matter of fact, it wasn't known at all. Uh, that, that, you know, They began talking about the environment when I was a little bit older uh, in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, environment became an important word. But ecology never came into the lexicon until somewhat later than that. And of course, ecology means how everything is interrelated. Mm -hmm. the, earth and the stars and the sun and the moon and the plants and the animals and everything in creation. And uh, in that sense, it gives you a very holistic understanding of the world if you study it deeply, which I have all my life. And it pains me so much today to see very much of this world being misled into believing things that are simply not true. Um, let me just uh, maybe come back to this later, but a quick example is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, twice the size of Texas and growing 16 times faster than we thought before. It does not exist. It simply is fictitious. And if you look at a satellite photograph, instead of these Photoshop pictures that people have painted a big patch on the Pacific Ocean, or you know just drawn it there and said, this is the Pacific Garbage Patch. If you take a satellite photograph, there is no Pacific Garbage Patch. So then they say, well, you know, very funny. It's just the clear plastic. No. And the, the funny thing about that is clear plastic is actually denser than water, so it sinks, whereas it's mostly colored plastic, which floats. And then it, and then you say, no, no, clear plastic sinks. Oh, but it's just beneath the surface, right? As if every piece of plastic has a buoyancy compensation device on it to, to have it <laughs> perfectly right there. And then they finally say, it's microplastic. And, oh, you mean it's invisible, so I can't see it. And you're calling it a great Pacific garbage patch that you have to tow away in huge batches, apparently. It's a lie. There is no Pacific garbage patch. And and and, and because it's both invisible, if it's microplastic, or even if it were visible, you couldn't see it from shore because it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it's a one. It's it's a wonder that somebody doesn't go and fly over it and see that it isn't there. No one's doing that, and it would be it's easy to do. You just go to Hawaii, and uh, that's that's the story. It's a, it's true. There isn't one. I think that was probably the most startling thing about your book. And um, sorry, there are sirens going off. Um, that is the most startling because I know I have, I have cited the grapes at some point in my 
crazy ramblings over the last 38 months of doing this podcast. I know I've certainly cited the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I had no idea that it just, and it's not that it's not that it's exaggerated or you know some some say it caused this many deaths, but it's actually just but no, it's not it's not it's like it's the inverse of like the flat Earth people, where you know it because you can put a GoPro on a rocket and watch the elevation or even a commercial airliner and see the curvature. And they say like, no, well, that's, you know, that's fake too. It's the inverse of it. It's you can't provide any evidence because it's, it's invisible, but yet it's a patch. The one thing that looked kind of real because it was real was this huge patch of debris on the ocean. And a diver was in the middle of it to give it effect, I guess. And, that it said this is part of the great pacific garbage patch then i looked at the picture a little closer and i noticed there were mountains in the background like a whole range of mountains quite quite low looking but they were there and i did a little bit more study and i found out actually what this was was part of the debris where where 20,000 people were killed by the tsunami in japan that washed town whole towns into the ocean and so that's what it was but they were calling it part of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which I thought was rather irreverent, seeing as though 20,000 people died in that event. They should at least be honest about what we're looking at because it wasn't caused by humans. The tsunami was caused by the Earth's geology. And one of the interesting facts about tsunamis is that, and earthquakes in particular, is that nobody died from the earthquake in Japan, even though it was 9.1 or so on the Richter scale, because they know how to build buildings that don't fall down in earthquakes. I think just two years later, Haiti had an earthquake that killed 250,000 people, and it was 20 times less powerful than the one in Japan. That's because of substandard construction with bad concrete and not enough rebar most of those people died in buildings Mm. and you know that that's that's the kind of thing i think we should maybe help people with is making better concrete turkey just had that earthquake that killed i forget how many thousands it was many and it was the same issue poor poor building standards or lack of compliance with building standards on the cheap words you cite again and again how it's the you know you can take a real event unlike the i guess pacific garbage patch in which case it's not real but you can take a real event and sort of shield yourself behind it and it's it's almost irreverent to question it right it's it's someone hiding behind oh oh you you doubt all this garbage is here and all these bodies are here and it's the inverse no what what they're doing is irreverent like sure a tsunami is of course terrible but that's not what's at question here and they're completely manipulating it and hiding behind it and it's a very emotional appeal right it's it's they're masters at that and you kind of take it hook line and sinker but as you as you flesh out in the book a lot of it is a money grab and a power grab and not much more almost all of it is you know there definitely has never been an end of the world yet Although people have been talking about it for an awfully long time. You Will Perish in Flames is on the cover of my book because they say that the climate is actually going to destroy the earth and everything living on it. Is appear- it appears that's what they're saying. The world will come to an end, they say. AOC says that and so does Al Gore. Burning in hell, you know, it's old fire and brimstone all over again, just like it was back in the days that were, where we thought people were ignorant. Uh, it seems to me that they're just as ignorant now to, especially to purposefully make up these scare stories that are false and that they know are false. It, it, you've got these people building these huge contraptions to go out and salvage all the plastic in the ocean. When in fact, a piece of plastic in the ocean, I don't understand how they are able to convince people that plastic suddenly becomes toxic when it goes into the ocean. We wrap our food in it. <laughs> Right, we put it in plastic containers. Yes, and (laughs) it's going to poison the world when it gets in the ocean. In fact, when it gets in the ocean, 
it provides a substrate, a living place for many, many species. Hundreds of species have been identified with benefiting from plastic floating in the water. Barnacles and mussels and other species then get there and eat those things. So it's no different than driftwood. As a matter of fact, there's a very nice analogy written about that. But plastic actually has some properties that driftwood doesn't. It comes in the shape of cups and bottles, which things can live inside and make a habitat and a home for themselves. Greenpeace has a picture of a plastic, clear plastic cup underwater with a crab in it. It says, the crab is trapped in the plastic cup. No, <laughs> how could it be trapped? It's got a whole area this big to come out if it wants to. It's living in there and it's using it as shelter. Hmm. So the different interpretations, scaring people into thinking that a crab is trapped in a plastic cup, and then they don't even stop to think that, of course, the crab can come out of the cup anytime it wants. It, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Now, fish nets in the sea are not a good thing. And the reason they get put in the sea is because fishermen only have a certain amount of room on their boats, and they don't want it to be used for damaged fish nets. They'd rather get rid of them and have fish or ice there instead. And so it is a problem, but if only people would get specific and focus on that particular issue, because when when drift when nets float around in the ocean, they catch fish. I mean, I don't even know if that's a bad thing, because then someone will eat the fish if the net catches it, you know. And so I I don't even think that's a terribly bad thing. But it they call them ghost nets mm. because they're floating around by themselves and catching fish and. And, and you don't want to see turtles get hung up in things like that either. So I, I agree that we should have a program to figure out how to get fishermen to not throw their nets overboard, uh, pay them for them when they come back to the dock in so much a pound or whatever, and then burn them for energy. And so you get something back out of it again. This is another one that drives me nuts about the extreme environmentalists, as they call themselves. They're against fire, period, not just fossil fuels. They're against burning wood. They're against burning garbage as a source of energy. They're just plain against fire, uh, combustion. And what is wrong with the, Ch the Chinese have just built the largest waste to energy plant in the world. Almost all the Western European countries have about a 50-50 ratio between recycling waste, plastic, paper, and wood, which are the combustibles in the waste stream and burning them to make energy in sophisticated state-of-the-art plants with all the pollution control. Even if, if you put a bunch of construction waste in there that's wood full of nails, the nails get melted and come out and you, you recycle the steel. So everything gets recycled out of those machines. And there is virtually no landfill in Western Europe in any of the modernist countries there. Eastern Europe still has a fair amount of landfilling that land isn't as expensive there as it is in, in Western Europe. That's one of the reasons why they don't use landfills is because it's a waste of land. And But they also get energy out of their waste. It, it There's lots of wood waste from construction demolition that isn't suitable for being used as wood again. And there's lots of plastic waste that isn't suitable as being used again. And the same thing goes with paper, like, you know, pizza boxes. They don't want you putting those in the recycling because of all the tomato juice in them or whatever. So there are solutions to a lot of things that these, these people are saying, that, for example, they don't want nuclear power. When, in, when that's about the only thing there is in most places that can actually replace fossil fuel in a large scale. Think about the wind and solar. And I'm, I'm really involved in an issue on that now because I was on all four of the Save the Whales voyages with Greenpeace into the Pacific in the 70s, 75, 6, 7, and 8, and 9, four voyages. And we stopped the killing of 30,000 whales every year in the North Pacific Ocean by Russia and Japan. Now, whales are starting to wash up more than they have been in the past on the beaches of, of the Atlantic coast of the U.S., where the Biden administration is is, is hell-bent on building 1,500 massive wind turbines in the in the ocean where the whales breed some of them some of them are, that's their feeding ground it's where they live it's where they migrate through 
And whales are washing up now four times more than they did previous to 2016 when all of this got started. Now, you can't prove much of anything about this. I mean, but on the other hand, I, I just don't think we should do such a thing in, in, in the oceans as to put 1,500. Some people say it'll go up to 3,500 turbines. But even that's not the main point. These things are useless in the final analysis. They do not work more than a third of the time at any decent amount of power output. So if you take wind and solar together, wind, solar doesn't even work 25% of the time in most places because it, it's dark half the time to, to start mm -hmm. with. And late in the day and early in the morning, you don't get very much energy until the sun gets up a decent angle. And then when the panels are covered in snow in the winter, you don't get any either. So, so think about the fact you need enough power to power all of city and industry now, right? Whatever time of day it is, you need whatever it's drawing. When the wind and solar isn't working, what do you do if you can't use fossil fuels and you don't have hydroelectric potential? Well, you have to charge batteries. When do you charge the batteries? Not when the wind and solar isn't working. You have to do it when they're working. That means you have to have three times as much energy capacity on your grid as you do now. Because you, you can't charge the batteries when the sun isn't shining. It's only when you're supplying all the energy to the city that you can also charge the batteries, which is about two thirds of the total power supply has gotta be in batteries. Nobody has done the math on this. Well, actually people have done. Mark Mills at the, the Manhattan Institute has done the math on this. And so has the Manhattan contrarian, Francis Menton. He's a New York resident as well. And is brilliant uh, in, in physics. And he says it would pretty much take the entire GDP of the world to charge enough, to build and charge enough batteries to be able to back up wind and solar. And they're still saying it's going to be cheaper than fossil fuels or nuclear, which is a lie. If you look at Germany's electricity cost, it's approximately three times the USA's. And now the United States is following suit with this so-called net zero, which basically means there's no net CO2 going into the atmosphere, which is in fact a benefit because it's greening the whole earth. Everybody knows that who's in science, that the plants and trees and food crops are growing faster and larger than they did prior to our finally putting some CO2 back into the atmosphere while it has actually been falling steadily for about 500 million years that we know of. It may, may have been higher even before that, but the record we, records we have in marine sediments go back half a billion years to where we can see isotopes that give us clues as to what things were like then. And around the time when the forests began to emerge, when, it's when lignin was invented by plants and could create a strong stem with the cellulose as rebar and the lignin as the concrete, it's a perfect analogy, in fact. The lignin is like a plastic, which is sticks together, whereas the, the cellulose is like a long strand, like rebar. And when you put them together, like a tree does, you can have a, 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 a redwood tree 250 feet high that doesn't blow over in the Pacific winds. It sways like a concrete column mm. or, a, or a high rise. Is, they're built to be able to sway a bit. So they're, 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 it's interesting that we took us that long to figure out what the tree figured out 300 million years ago. And, but there was no enzyme to digest lignin. And so CO2 was between five and 6,000 parts per million in the atmosphere back then. And the trees loved that because that's even more than they actually need. And, and these huge forests emerged all over the earth once they learned how to grow the stem. The trees just kept getting taller, seeking the sunshine as they went up and get out of the shade. And uh, the CO2 had a precipitous drop at that time. It went down to almost as low as it is now, where we've brought it back up to about 420 parts per million. It was five to 6,000 parts per million, and life was perfect in it. didn't matter at all. 
And so it, it came way down and it was nearly a hundred million years before it started coming back up again. And it's because there was nothing that could digest wood. And so the wood built up and that's where 50% of all our coal was made. There's coal seams a hundred feet thick because the trees piled up on top of each other, taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere with them mm. and turned into coal, which that carbon that's in the coal came from the atmosphere. This is what a lot of these people seem to not be able to figure out, that all the carbon we're emitting today came from the atmosphere in the first place or from the sea. The sea and the air are in equilibrium at the surface. If, if the CO2 goes down in the atmosphere, it goes down in the ocean. If it goes up in the atmosphere, it goes up in the ocean. So CO2 has gone down precipitously for the last 2,500 years as it came back up to about 2,000 ppm once the lignin digesting uh, fungus, it was a fungus that first invented the enzyme lignase, like cellulase is the enzyme that digests cellulose. Lignase is the enzyme first produced by a mushroom. And now cows can eat grass because that fungus is in a microbe inside the cow's stomach. It's what's digesting. Not The, the cow isn't actually digesting the cellulose and the lignin. It's these enzymes. And so they were invented way long ago and brought CO2 way down. Then it came up to about half of what it was in the first place, because now there really was a lot of carbon locked up in forests. If you can imagine in terms of global biomass, that is the mass of all life on earth, only about 5% of it is in the oceans. Most of it is on mountains and places where trees grow. So about somewhere but between 90 and 90 some odd percent of all the weight of life on earth is in forests. And so that's where most of the carbon is going every year, cycling through soils and trees and being lost to sediments in estuaries and things like that. So basically carbon dioxide has been dropping all through the history of life. And everybody thinks there's too much of it. When in fact it was getting so low at the last interglacial beginning of the of this interglacial period we're in now during the, the most recent glacial maximum which was 20,000 years ago when the whole of Canada was covered in a mile or three of ice depending on where you were and even the whole northern pier states of the U.S. were covered in a glacier it started to melt 20,000 years ago took 10,000 years to do it and now there's been 10,000 years since then where we've been in this interglacial slightly warmer period but this is not a warm period in the history of the earth. Before this Pleistocene ice age set on about two and a half million years ago, the earth had been warmer for 250 million years than it is now, much warmer. And life flourished through the dinosaur age and the birds evolved then and many of the fish. So life was very happy with that period of time when CO2 was much higher than it is today. So basically what we've done by using fossil fuels and making cement, which when you make cement, you use limestone to make the, the, the lime, the calcium oxide, and CO2 is given off. So about 10% of our human emissions are from cement making. 90% are from fossil fuels. This is one of the best things that life has ever done for itself in the history of life. Because why did all... The, the, the CO2 come out of the atmosphere permanently because of the shellfish in the ocean. Nobody knows this. Why, do, why doesn't everybody know that? All the limestone on earth and the, the chalk, the white cliffs of Dover are made from the shells of microscopic plankton called coccolithophores, which built calcium, uh, calcium carbonate shells for themselves. It's like a, a knight in armor. All of these soft bodied creatures that came out of the Cambrian explosion, which is what the ter ter term is used for when before that all life was unicellular and invisible. Multicellular life emerged in the Cambrian period 550 million years ago, but it was all like jellyfish. It didn't have a skeleton or a shell. And, and the way we went, the, the, the fish and the, the, the bony animals like us went with an internal skeleton 
but many, many species opted for an exoskeleton, which is a shell. All the crabs uh, and, and shrimp and, and, and those relatives, the arthropods, and then all the shellfish like clams and oysters and mussels and barnacles. And actually a, a barnacle is related to a crab, not to a clam. But uh, anyways, all these shellfish emerged and coral reefs today produce 50% of all the calcium carbonate being used to build reefs. And seeing as though the sea level rose 400 feet from that 20,000 years ago when most all that ice was on the land instead of being in the oceans, as the seas rose 400 feet, the coral had to rise 400 feet to keep up with it, which it did. So there's lots of places where there's 400 feet of calcium carbonate in, in one layer. And going back the other glacial periods before that, of which there were about 40, it happened every time, that sort of thing. So there's 100 million billion tons of carbon in the, the carbonaceous rocks, as they are called. It includes chalk, limestone, um, marble, which is a harder form. It's been compressed and heated below the surface, and dolomite. These are all carbonaceous rocks. They are all of life origin. They didn't come out of a volcano like granite did. They came from creatures building shells. And that has resulted in a drawdown to during the most recent glacial period, when the seas cool, they absorb more CO2 from the atmosphere. Like when you take a glass of water out of a fridge and put it on the shelf, soon you see little bubbles forming on the inside of the glass. That's the gases coming out. Then you put it back in the fridge, those bubbles will disappear as the gases are reabsorbed. During our 40 or so glacial periods, during the cooling of the earth, CO2 is absorbed into the oceans and it goes down in the atmosphere as a result. During the warming, it's given off and it goes up. Between the last glaciation and when the places when the glaciers were were finished melting it went from 180 to 280 parts per million 180 parts per million is only 30 parts per million above the death of plants that was the lowest co2 had ever been in the history of the earth at 180 never ever had, it just kept getting lower all the way through the pleistocene as it cooled and cooled and cooled it appears to still be cooling so that that will upset the earth warmers or whatever they're called that think that we're going into a some kind of hothouse age when in fact the earth has been in step in, in in fits and stops it doesn't go all in one cycle ever there's cycle on cycle on cycle short ones on sh on longer ones on longer ones and for the past 6000 years the the earth has been starting to cool again appears it's about the right timing compared to the other interglacial periods that this is when we will begin the gradual descent of 80,000 years into the next glacial maximum. At this point in the Pleistocene, for about a million years now, they've been on 100,000-year cycles, approximately, in keeping with the gravitational effect of Jupiter. How many people know that? And most people don't even know that Jupiter has an effect on the tides. The, the, the moon is the biggest effector, the sun's the next, but you can see Jupiter's fingerprints in the tides. It's such a massive body and it's a long ways away, but it has a gravitational effect on the, there's three Milankovitch cycles. Milankovitch was an Eastern European scientist who discovered these cycles in the 1930s, 20s and 30s around there. And uh, no one knows about them, of course, because of course they're not really very important at all. Just that they are the things that cycle the 100,000 year cycle. And that's that's the shape of the Earth's orbit around the, the sun. It goes from more to less elliptical due to the pull of Jupiter's gravity. And the the tilt of the Earth changes by close to two degrees mm -hmm. every every uh, forty two thousand years. The cycles went on that in the beginning of the Pleistocene for the first uh, twenty or so glacial periods. Uh, it went according to the 42,000 year cycle and it suddenly switched to the 100,000 year cycle. And then there's the 
the wobble, which is the, the why the North Star won't always be the North Star. Right now, our Earth is pointing this way, and despite, never mind what it goes like this way, it also goes this way. It has a, it 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 changes its orientation to the rest of the universe. In other words, in terms of where its tilt faces. And uh, anyways, those three cycles appear to be very influential in in the cycles that we're going through now. Now it's amazing that we found that out. Uh, what people don't understand is there's so many things we don't know why it's happening. And let's take, for example, the actual ice ages themselves. People make the mistake of thinking the most recent glaciation was the ice age, and now it's over. No, what's over is the most recent glacial maximum out of 40 of them in the Pleistocene ice age. It's all in graphs in my book. And we, we know this stuff to be true. But there's so many things that we don't know. And one of them is, why do ice ages happen in the first place? Because they, they do not follow any time pattern. And the last one before this one, this one's two and a half million years old. The one before this one was 100 million years. That's how, how long it stayed cold. And, and 250 million years it ended. 350 million years ago it started during the period of the forests. What people don't understand is what that when the earth warms, it does so inordinately towards the poles. The equator stays about the same. I mean, if the equator went up by 10 degrees Celsius average, it would be impossible to live there. But we evolved there during these glacial periods. The Homo sapiens is only 300,000 years old. And so we only go back for two glacial periods out of 40. I mean, there were other uh, genus Homo before us, Homo erectus and Homo Neanderthal man. But it's considered that the modern human began 300,000 years ago. And we came from the equator. We are a tropical species. That's something else these people don't seem to understand. We are not penguins. We're not like an Arctic species. As a matter of fact, it's amazing that any species evolved to be able to live in the Antarctic. And the only reason they can is because there's food in the sea. There is no food on the land there. What kind of an environment is that what you want to be in? You know, and yet they almost make it seem as if it would be better if the earth got colder than it is now. When in fact, we are already in a cold period in Earth's history right now. It's just that it's not as cold as it gets when these amazing events of the whole half the Northern Hemisphere covered in ice comes around every 100,000 years of late for about 10 times. So uh, what a fascinating world it is, but what an unfortunate thing it is that so many people lack any of this knowledge. And when you even try to tell it to them, they don't believe it, even though it is thoroughly corroborated and anybody in science who isn't getting a government grant to do climate science at a university knows it but those people are all faking it that's the, the silent part of this whole thing everybody knows about the scientists doing the science and the media publishing the scare stories and the greens making millions again scaring people as if they can do something about it and Yet it's the, the invisible part of this is the bureaucrats told by politicians to give certain scientists money to keep this thing alive because there's no truth to it. It is true that we are in the modern warm period now. There was a Roman warm period 2,000 years ago, a Minoan warm period 3,000 years ago, a medieval warm period just 1,000 years ago when the Norse went to, to Greenland and farmed considerable number of them were there. They all left as the earth cooled into the little ice age, which peaked or nadired at about uh, 1700 AD. And for the last 320 years, the earth has been warming in fits and starts with cool periods like the 60s were, 1960s were a cool period. The 1930s were a very warm period in many, in many places warmer than it is today. That's the big lie in the history of U.S. temperature trends. The 1930s and the Dust Bowl were warmer than today. This is not a peak. This is, maybe it will become one, because theoretically there's still 200 years left 
on the 500 year cycles of warming, cooling, warming, cooling. And so it's a thousand years between each warm maximum and a thousand years between each cold maximum for the last 6,000 years. That's the way it's been going. But in general, it's falling, not going up. So at the end of this warm period, it may fall to lower than the Little Ice Age was, which was the coldest period since the beginning of the Holocene interglacial period 10,000 years ago. When, when interglacial periods occur, they come out of the glacial maximum in about 10,000 years compared to the 80,000 it takes to get into them. So there's a kind of sawtooth looking graph. And then there's about a 10,000 year interglacial period, sometimes 12. It appears as though with this one being at least 10,000 years old now, that's sort of when agriculture began, when the earth warmed back up again after the glacial period. When the, when, now that the earth is warming up, we are getting better growth. The earth is greening. We're putting CO2 in the air. We are the saviors of life, we humans. But in the same way as the as the creatures in the sea inadvertently predicted the end of life by building these shells that were eventually going to suck all the CO2 out of the atmosphere to the point where it wasn't capable of living any longer, to the death of plants, we have inadvertently, by using fossil fuels as an energy source, saved life from, from certain catastrophe. It, would, it There was nothing to stop the shellfish from just sucking it up until they couldn't do it anymore. And it would just be like, in, in other words, we'd go out with a whimper, not with a bang. It would just gradually taper off till there was no life left or almost none. And then I don't know what what could happen to make it come back again. There, there wouldn't be anything. We did it by taking limestone and making it into cement and by taking coal and burning it for fuel. All that CO2 used to be in the atmosphere. Don't you think that should have some bearing on this discussion? They, they're acting as if we found this, U, this CO2, uh, this carbon uh, fossil fuel, carbon bearing fossil, as if it came from Mars or something. No, it was made from plants. The coal was made from plants in, on the land, mostly trees. And the oil and gas was made from marine life falling to the bottom and going just deeper and deeper and deeper where the pressure uh, turned it into fossil fuels, oil and gas. So all, all that carb, all we're doing is putting it back where it came from and where, where life was quite happy with it being there. And it didn't cause the earth to burn or boil or die. Sorry to talk so much. No, please keep talking. I'm, I'm mesmerized. Anyways, that's my CO2 story. Um, the, the other thing that really drives me nuts is, 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 uh, Attenborough, mm. the English. David, uh, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that. Yeah. His, uh, his David, the, the seals walking off the cliff. The walruses. Yeah. Walruses, excuse me. Same family. Yeah. Um, pinnipeds. And it was, it, it was, it, I think, I, I don't think he said they leapt to their death, but it was that sort of metaphor. Bad vision. As, yeah. As if, a, but as, as if a walrus can jump, you know, <laughs> yeah. jump yeah. off a cliff. Yeah, they sort of rolled, waddled, and rolled down mm. the cliff. But of course, the reason that he said the reason they were falling off the cliff was because the ice is their home, and the ice is gone. Well, every summer the ice goes north from the coast of Russia. It's been doing it forever. I mean, not. not from, there wasn't any there during the hot period that came before this interglacial, before this ice age that we've got now. But the funny thing about uh, about it is, it's it's a the Russians have a boundary around this place where the walruses come out onto the land, and Attenborough's making it like they don't really want to be there. They'd rather be on the ice, when in fact it's designated as a walrus sanctuary on a map, right? <laughs> That's why they're there, because that's where they want to be. And, and and the ice is not their home. Their home is the ocean. And and like polar bears, the ice is their home in the winter. But for walruses, it's not. They don't eat seals. They eat bottom and, uh, clams and things living in the mud. 
So they have to be where the water is no deeper than 300 feet, which is close to shore. So they are basically a shore animal, shoreline animal. And where seals and walrus and, and seals and uh, what are those other great big things? Sea lions. They can go out quite deep into deep ocean and hunt fish. But there's no the walruses can't catch a fish. That's what those big teeth on the front of them are for, is for digging in the mud down mm. in the bottom. Mm. Hardly anybody knows that, but that's what they do. That. Yeah, that's how they eat. And so they have to stay close to shore. So he just lied through his teeth so many times in that thing. And you see this the, the female camera woman with a tear coming out of her eyes, then pan to the, you know, the walrus falling down the cliff and dying. And of course, it was because a pack of polar bears were approaching them from behind. And there's so many of them now because it's illegal to kill walruses in Russia, which is a good thing in some ways, except they're overpopulated like you wouldn't believe it. And the, the whole area is just thick. You can't see the ground. And some of them have to go up high where there is a cliff there. And they could easily get down if the other walruses would get out of their way, but they can't walk over top of each other. I mean, it just, that just doesn't work. You'd get a, one of those teeth in your belly if you did that. So they had to go away from the polar bears and that meant falling off a cliff. And sad, but he makes it seem like that... Uh, the polar bears are doing it because there's not enough ice anymore, which is, is ridiculous. Um, he's, he's done a lot of things like that. You know, the, one of the funniest things I like to tell people, which is true, as true can be, if it wasn't for climate change, there wouldn't be any polar bears. There simply would not be any. Because if this ice age has not happened and the ice did not form on the Arctic, where it hadn't been for 200 million plus years, until this ice age came. There would be no ice for the polar bears to have evolved on. Polar bears are directly descended from the European brown bear, which is what we call grizzly bears on this side of the map. They came here over the Bering Land Bridge during one of the times when the glaciers were so big that it became dry there when the sea level fell far enough down. Humans, of course, came across during the most recent one, about 16,000 years ago. Uh, but we don't, I don't know if we know exactly when the caribou, which are actually reindeer, and moose came from the old world. Grizzly bears came from the Eurasian uh, brown bear from the old world. And one other, um, anyways, I forget what it was. There was five main animals, including humans, that came from over there fairly recently because of this ice age because these animals weren't here during the caribou 250 million years ago and and so so therefore there was no bearing land bridge in that 200 million year period um the brown bear as the ice came and to to the coast of russia in the depth of winter the brown bears learned to go out on the ice and hunt seals and pretty soon, because they became a separate subpopulation that did go out there, whereas the other ones stayed behind eating berries and stuff further south, they turned white. They got half as big again as the Eurasian brown bear because they have to pull a 300-pound seal out of a hole in the ice. And they developed a different digestive system that's more tending to carnivorous diet because they don't get the berries and leaves and stuff that the brown bears get. It probably took half a million years of this two and a half million Pleistocene ice age that we're in for the brown bear to turn into a polar bear. They can still mate successfully and have viable offspring, which funnily enough is the definition of a species. So one of them anyway. So my, my good friend Susan Crockford's polar bear specialist is horrified when I say that because she wants them to be polar bears, not to be the same species as a brown bear, for goodness sakes. And uh, and they are a, a, a wonderful animal. You know, they have these pictures of them stranded on an ice, block of ice out in the ocean. Their nickname is sea bears. <laughs> they don't just jump into the ocean and swim off over the horizon. You know, they actually know where they're going when they get in the water. And, 
And yet it's as if they're all going to die from drowning. And I mean, a much larger number of people die from drowning every year than polar bears, because we're not meant to be swimming between ice flows. But uh, it, it's just so funny how many myths there are around this thing. And it, at least there's some humor in it. There's a lot of humor and there's a lot of alleviation of fear and anxiety of, yep. well, we're burning it all down. You just, no, nah, man, it's fine. You know, it's like it's like a kid going to sleep for like the first time. It's like, you're yeah. going to wake up. It's fine. You're going to wake up. That's right. Well, I've got about five more minutes. Here oh, wow. To... Oh, Lord. I can, I completely, that is my fault. That's the best compliment I can give you is the fact that I lost track of time. I'm normally very cognizant. You've got to let me come on again one day. Oh, but just... yeah, dude. No, 100%. No, you don't have a choice. You're coming back on. I just want to give you one more story. This sure. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say that the climate change is what's causing all the fires, right? The forest fires. For some reason, they're mostly happening on federally owned land, whereas in the U.S. Southeast, which is just as forested and actually produces way more timber than the West, there's hardly any forest fires. Maybe it has something to do with management. And it's interesting that the federal lands are almost all west of the Mississippi. The forest land, U.S. forest land, national land, national forest land, BWB, what is it? Bureau of Land Management land. Idaho is 70% federally owned. And many of the other states west of the Mississippi have a large percentage of federally owned land in them. Most of the politicians are east of the Mississippi. So the U.S. Congress can make decisions that don't affect their own constituents and, and beat their chest for being all environmental about preserving the forests and stuff, right? Mm. Well, when you preserve a forest, that means sort of a hands-off approach. Mustn't do any forestry, of course. And that causes the dead wood to build up in the forest over the decades of mismanagement, no management, that is. And that is why these fires start. You think back in the old days, even in the native tribes in, in United States, Canada, Australia, and even, even further back when everybody was a native tribe, you gathered the dead wood around your community every fall for the heat and cooking in the winter. You took every bit of it. You kept the forest floor nice and clean mm -hmm. so, that it, so that if it did catch on fire, it wouldn't get up into the crown and cause a raging inferno. So then we stopped using wood as our main fuel a couple of hundred years, 150 years ago, that's all and started using coal and then oil and, and gas. And now who cares about all the dead wood in the forest? I've just been to Oregon where they had a 400,000 acre fire there a couple of years ago, which killed about half the trees. And they just left the dead trees standing. They didn't even try to salvage them. You could, there's still good wood in those trees. But they have this idea that you sh shouldn't touch it. But now those dead trees are going to dry out. And the next time that place catches on fire, there'll be nothing left alive there. So that's the way she goes. Anyways, it's been really great being with you. And I know I talk too much. But... No, no, no. Trust me. It's I, I never shut up. So if I shut up, it's because I have a really good guest. So that's and that proves in the pudding. Go back and look at a thousand episodes. If I'm not talking, it's because I'm I'm being sucked in. That was great. And it's there's almost a very. uh. It's almost a very Zen or like or like Tao kind of flowing meta theme to all of this is that, you know, from like the year cycles to the 10 year to the million to the deep time, just where you can't even really wrap your head around it. The, you know, making shells and then piling up to create the cliffs and then we're chopping these and we're making bricks and then we're taking the the wood and burning it. It's all just this. It's all just this flowing cycle. It's almost like a screensaver of just like changing colors. And you never, like every wave and every, it's just, they're all creating the next wave and the next ripple. And it's just, you can never, where did the wind begin? It's like, you know, it's always just going. It's, there's a very, there's a very meditative theme to everything you just said of just, it's all, it's, it's flowing and dare I say, perfect harmony. And... That's the nature of nature. Uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, there's no such thing as perfect. Well, if this isn't perfect, I don't know what is. Yeah. 
We are alive for one thing. We're here. Yes, we are here somewhere now. <laughs> it's, it's worked out. Yeah, I'm here. Did. My thumbs work. You know, I'm. Sure did for me for a long time, and you know, the only consolation about not being here forever is that if it wasn't for death, there would be no evolution. Yeah. And if there was no evolution, there we wouldn't be. We here. wouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta have, you gotta have. Recess is so much more sweet when there's a whistle that's gonna blow. And yeah. on that note, though, I have to let you go because I know you have another interview. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you an email right now, and let's definitely schedule another one. I'll, and I'll, I'll put aside more than an hour. I would love to hear you just wind you up and let you go. This is, I sincerely enjoyed this. Well, I, I, I hope you will because I love to explain these things to people because so many people have never heard about them before. None. And and that's what they should be hearing about is the real truth rather than a bunch of scare stories that are based on things that are either invisible or so remote like coral reefs and polar bears that you can make up any story you want and they can't check it out for themselves. Yeah. Just one yeah. last point. Sure. Science, very simple thing. Science, the the discoveries in science are found first by observation. There's no other choice. You have to have observed something either with your eyes or your senses or with a telescope or a microscope or a Geiger counter or something. You have to have seen something happen. When you see it, you go, oh, wow, I wonder if this caused this. And then you check it over and over and over again, which is called verification. And then if it works out right, that it's always the same and it looks to me like this is a cause and effect relationship, you do the next step, which is replication. Mm -hmm. You give it out to the public and say, go ahead, guys. This is what happens when I do this. See if it works for you. And if it does, you've gone from a hypothesis, which was as a result of your replication of that over and over again, to a theory that eventually becomes accepted. And like Einstein and Darwin, you might not live to see it accepted by the general public or the scientific community because neither of them did but and maybe i won't either but i don't care because <laughs> I, I i i'm i'm doing my best at at, at trying to get, help people understand this this uh doom and gloom thing that they're being uh being being scared into thinking something bad is going to happen if they don't stop using fossil fuels which is completely ridiculous I believe in using less fossil fuels, but the only way to do it is with hydroelectric or nuclear. Mm -hmm. And we should be doing it because fossil fuels are precious. And reducing them, if we, as long as we can replace them with something that works, which is not wind and solar, then we can have a good future. Thank you again, Tommy. Yes, sir. Thank yes, you sir. so much for being on here. Guys, go to the description, go follow him on Twitter, go buy the book, and I'm going to email you. We're going to schedule another one. That was beautiful. You're a beautiful soul. Thank you, sir. Dr. Patrick Moore, thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Recording Stay stopped. Safe. Peace.